Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The important thing in life is not the triumph, but the fight. The essential thing is not to have won, but to have fought well. The Olympic Creed is a quote from French educator Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the modern Olympic Games. As we come together in anticipation of its 32nd edition, I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, someone who embodies the Olympic values of excellence, friendship and respect, the flag bearer and team captain of the Australian contingent at Rio de Janeiro in 2016. Our guest today is two-time Olympic gold medalist and Amir's OAM, the first Australian athlete to ever win four individual medals at four consecutive Olympic Games. In her 22 years as an elite track cyclist, she has broken multiple records and consistently won in multiple World Championships and Commonwealth Games, making her the most decorated and successful female track cyclist in history. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners and followers from all over the world, please don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in England, Brazil and Japan, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this conversation, we are treated to Anna's tales of triumph, perseverance, and overcoming adversity. A born competitor, she shares with us the moment that ignited her quest for success, the tremendous dedication many can only imagine in her journey to the Everest of her sport and her astounding recovery from the accident which threatened to derail her life way beyond the bank tracks of the velodrome. So sit back and enjoy. Dedication beyond comprehension. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Greg. So you competed in four consecutive Olympic Games. You're a two-time Olympic champion, 11-time world champion, but you had an accident in 2008 which could have changed everything. Can you talk us through the accident and what was going on through your mind during that period and thereafter? Yeah, I was in Los Angeles in January of 2008 at a World Cup event, which was a qualifying race for Beijing, and I had made the Kieran final. And unfortunately, I clicked the wheel of an opponent uh, within the final lap of that race and um, found myself falling to the velodrome floor. It's something that happens often almost at every competition um, given that we ride bikes at a fixed wheel with no brakes a, a clipping of the wheel at the speeds that we travel and how close and proximity we compete against each other in is is quite a common affair but yeah the accident saw me with a long list of injuries and to top that list off was a was a fractured c2 vertebra which left me in a in a pretty damaged state I guess you could say and uh, believing that my dream of uh, going to a second Olympic Games had literally flown out the window. So um, despite that, I did say to my coach before he left the hospital to come home to Australia uh, that I would still be right for Beijing. And uh, by the time I got home a week later from the US Medical Center in Los Angeles, he had gone back to my team and completely rerouted the whole plan 
require for me to still attempt to make Beijing happen. So lots of ups and downs, obviously, with a physical injury. It's um, surprising how much of that can start to affect mental and emotional states as well and the process of the road to recovery. So look, just for layman's terms, from what I understand, the fracture was what, two millimetres short of a clean break, which is what, broken neck. Mm -hmm. And the worst possible outcome could have been what, quadriplegia? And even possible death if it had been as bad as the worst we could think of. Uh, quadriplegia would have been the best case scenario had that uh, two millimetres been longer on that break. Obviously, the C2 level is where the lung attachments go through. So breathing would have required a respirator for the rest of my life. And um, obviously, worst case scenario would have been uh, been a loss of life. So, yeah, it uh, it was a pretty profound piece of information to learn as a young athlete and um, was really struck by a lot of fear and a lot of doubt even though that was the initial response it was my coach who who brought me around to start thinking in the the what is context and um, just dealing with the information that I had at hand and how I looked at that information and simply he got me looking at it in a positive way and that that two millimeters really did save my life and Every day going forward, I would be getting stronger and healthier and um, and looking forward to that potential of making the uh, Olympic Games team. Yeah, but Anna, is it true um, the what-if scenario sums up, what, 10 days later, you're back on a bike? Yes, 10 Seriously? days later, I was uh, on a bike. Really? <laughs> um, not in the context that you would... <laughs> Um, be aware of wow. I mean it was it was set up on a, a rig at home on my indoor trainer with a self-adjustable portable clothes rack in front of me to help with balance because one thing I couldn't do which I didn't realize you couldn't do until I broke my neck was support the weight of my own head so um, it was really important to get active again rather than allow the body to seize up and to do that I had to sit as upright as possible because I quite simply could not lean on the handlebars of my bike. Okay, so this is all mind over matter. This is willpower, but what's the motivation? Can you just talk us through this? This is a severe accident. What speed were you travelling? Just give us an idea. 65 k's an hour um, when I I fell and um, obviously hit the banking of the velodrome, which is steeped at about 43, 45 k's an hour. Right. It's not so much always just drive and motivation. Sometimes it's youth and naivety. Sometimes it's not comprehending the full severity, even though you have the information at hand. Um, but for me, it was, you know, I, I had been at the Olympics before in 2004 in Athens. I was yeah, only 20 years of age. I knew what that felt like. I'd won gold and bronze there and I was desperate to be there again. And I knew that waiting another four years uh, was going to be very, very difficult. And um, I just didn't want to wait. <laughs> What does it feel like? What does it feel like to win the gold then? If that's what's making you get up back on that bike in 10 days, what does it actually feel like to make you do it again? It's hard to just sum it up in a brief detail, but um, it's almost having every possible emotion that you could describe hit you all at once. It's absolute elation. It's sheer shock and surprise. It's utter relief. Once all that kind of shock and emotion hits you too, it's it's taking your breath and looking up and realising there's a few thousand people in the stands and a few million people <laughs> at home. And, yeah, it's it's a really surreal experience. But, um, you know, to win that gold medal, it's it's it really is an overwhelming sense of achievement. We're spoiled by our Australian athletes in this level of success that we have had and continue to have that we forget how hard it is to be number one sometimes. Is that what drove you, to being the number one? No, what drove me was I loved competition. Loved competition, hated losing, um, but loved competition. So, yeah, I, I just we didn't get much of an opportunity to showcase ourselves at, at racing because um, being in Australia, you've got to travel a long way to get that international competition. It costs a lot of money. You spend a lot of time away from home and family and friends. And yeah. um when you, we did get a chance to race, it was, um, yeah, white line fever. Where did you grow up? Where did this all begin? Um, I grew up in a small coal mining town called Middlemount in central Queensland. And uh, I was born in the regional hospital out at Blackwater, which was the serving hospital for that area. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately in 94, I uh, watched the Commonwealth Games with my sister Carrie on TV and um, 
witnessed Cathy Watt win gold for Australia and that sparked our interest in track cycling, which took us to Mackay or Walkerston, where the closest cycling uh, track was. And we uh, we were there for two years every weekend on a 600k round trip. So that's, that's mum and dad driving every 300k's each way? Yep, each way. And then after two years, moving into Rockhampton, where there was better coaching and sporting facilities and stayed there for about uh, seven years before I was invited to Adelaide at the AIS Cycling Australia High Performance Program. And uh, I turned down the first offer at the age of 18. And and then after I won my first senior individual medal in the Kieran, the year after at the age of 19, I accepted a second invitation. When did you reckon you were pretty special? When did you think, I've got a talent for this? Uh, I don't think it was ever a matter of thinking that I was special. Okay. I always knew I had a bit of fight in me, but I was never, I wasn't good when I started. I was, like most kids, we develop at different rates and different ages, and I was very skinny, very short, really had to battle early on. Um, But it was, uh, I know a turning point was for me, you know, thinking maybe I could make something of it when I won the junior world titles in in Trexler Town, America and Pennsylvania in 2001. But also, wasn't there um, someone in the family also pretty good on, on the bike at one stage? Oh, yeah, not just one stage. <laughs> All the way through? Okay, so, so a bit of a competitive started at home with the sister? Oh, well, I've, I'm the youngest of four in my family, so competition was constant, whether it was food on the table or top bunk or shotgun in the car. Um, we were all, all a very sporty family from mum and dad through all the kids. And um, my closest sister, Kerry, and I did cycling together through to 2009. Um, Kerry was a dual Commonwealth champion, a dual Commonwealth bronze medalist, a world medalist, so very, very successful, um, but unfortunately didn't make uh, an Olympic berth because at the time it was um, just one position for a female sprinter because um, we didn't have equal event opportunity at the Olympic Games as our male counterparts. So Commonwealth and world level was a different story, but the the Olympic Games was uh, was pretty cutthroat. And, and like just on that, as you say, compared to the rest of the world, where was Australia in the sense of advanced focused in cycling? Are we up to speed during that, those days? We're a long way behind because it's not a sport that we're all necessarily thrown into. Australia has always been very competitive in the cycling um, and, and across nearly all the disciplines and uh, particularly in the sprint disciplines, Australia's had a really strong history. Female sprinters internationally have only ever been included in the Olympics since 1988 and there have only actually been seven Olympic sprint champions in the women's disciplines. And so, yeah, in terms of Australian sprinting, it's definitely got a rich, rich history. Sadly, it's not one that many people know. <laughs> okay. And so... Growing up, getting that exposure, who who were the big influences to guide you down this path? Well, my first coach, Ken Tucker, was obviously a big influencer outside of family, and uh, and he handed the reins over to Martin Barras when I was invited to the AIS as a nineteen year old. Martin Barras took me through um, to the Beijing Olympic Games through my accident and uh, the recovery, and then he handed the reins over to Gary West, whom I worked with for almost a decade um, in a very successful partnership as athlete and coach and team. Um, my manager, Francine Pinnock, was also a very big influencer, loved the sport of cycling, but as a, a female in her era, didn't have an opportunity to compete. And right. so when our paths crossed at a, a barbecue through a mutual friend, she was more than happy as a very successful international businesswoman to become my manager. And uh, I was the only, Carrie and I were the only athlete she managed. We were were her hobbies. (laughs) And she was able to just offer a completely different insight to psychology and competition. Obviously, there's lots of influences and inspiration um, and people that you look up to in the team. And certainly Shane Kelly was a big one. And and I, I love my sport. Um, and I have also, you know, now that I'm retired, got incredible mentors in, in people like Marjorie Jackson Nelson, Margaret Ralston, you know, Steve Waugh that I can just tap into and, uh, and have a chat to every now and then, which is just fantastic. Well, we started off in a, the big accident, but just throughout your career, can you sort of give us an understanding for those who maybe haven't cycled anywhere near your level? What is the injury rate like? And, how to, and also, how does one overcome it mentally, as you say? Well, the injury rate's actually quite low, surprisingly. Well, I've only ever broken one bone in my body, and that was my neck. I've probably hit the deck a handful of times. I could count on one hand the amount of times I've hit the deck. Um, if you're going to do injury, you're probably likely as a sprinter to do it in training because you do 
spend much more time under load and under pressure pushing the boundaries to try and improve. By the time competition comes along, that that load has subsided in order for you to be able to spring out with a bit of energy. So the Olympics isn't too far away. One of the big things about performing at the highest level is managing pressure Mm -hmm. and peaking at the right time. Yes. What advice do you give to those who may be listening to athletes out there listening to this before they get up on those blocks? How do you manage it? Well, I don't know that I would offer advice. I just share my experiences. You know, I really trusted my team. I wasn't an expert at writing programs and structuring how the taper phases went. Uh, I had to trust in their ability. I had to buy into the strategies that I was included in creating early on and back the process of making that happen over a long period of time and and back myself. Sometimes that's a really tricky thing to do because doubt is obviously um, something that is constant. You just got this wonder if it's going to work, if you're going to be competitive, all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to pressure, it's just as we hire coaches to help us bring the best out of ourselves physically, it's really important to hire coaches to bring the best out of us mentally and acquire those mental skills to be able to understand how we respond to pressure and expectation and stress in order to be able to cope with those situations going forward and um, learning to be open-minded and in that regard, helps you be an all-rounded athlete. And even with the best support that I had in my time, I still struggle. <laughs> it's uh, it's just a matter sometimes also of just bluffing your way through. <laughs> you had a sports psychologist? Yes, I worked with uh, quite a few in my time and also worked with clinical psychologists as well because the perspectives on experiences are, are very different. And um, still to this day, I have great relationships with my sports psychs and I still have working relationships with my clinical psychs. It's it's very important going forward, especially with the times that we're living in now, facing COVID-19 and, yep. and dealing with, you know, transition away from um, the sporting career and all the little challenges that life can throw at you. It's very volatile at the best of times. It's nice to be able to have that um, removed ear to be able to go and talk to, to, um, gain advice and perspective from when required. In regards to the the mental preparation, where would you put that in the weighting of being successful? Oh, it has to be on par. You know, it's, it's there's no no point being the best physical specimen if you don't know how to use the tools that you've got. <laughs> Yep. And the tools that you've got can be really affected by the environment that you're required to perform in as an athlete. So, I mean, if that's a risk that any athlete's prepared to take, then by all means, but it certainly wasn't one that I was prepared to do. We just discussed about mental, I guess, competitiveness. But if you're looking at, you said a minute ago regarding COVID and regarding the challenges out there, if we looked on the increased focus on mental health amongst, I guess, prominent sports people at the moment, particularly in the media, um, Naomi is coming up at the moment, Naomi Osaka, and her withdrawal from the French Open. What do you think can be done or help be done for athletes like that in their preparation? Well, I'm certainly not going to speak in any regards about Naomi or, or her circumstances or what I think she should do. I think it's just having a little bit of respect and perspective and understanding and even empathy for the position that they find themselves in as athletes and the pressure that it can impart Um I know certainly in my time as an athlete, the more success that I had, the harder I found that. I certainly went from the early part of my career loving trying to win to the latter part of my career where I was quite fearful of what happened when I didn't, the repercussion, the the media headlines, the opinions and the judgment that comes from that. Um, You certainly don't go into a competition to lose, but like I said earlier, it's. I think sometimes we forget how hard it, it can be to be number one and and understand the emotions uh, of the roller coaster that can come uh, with pressure. And, um, you know, especially in the environment of, of today, COVID and the insecurity that a lot of people feel as a result of that and the instability that that has certainly impacted. It's, you know, the mental side of things is probably the biggest factor that we're all facing at the moment. And your career wasn't short, was it, at the top? No, I did 16 years at the elite high performance senior level yeah, and I was 22 years all up in the sport. So that's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, it's a long time and, um, you know, I thought maybe I'd get one games rotation out of myself and uh, put my university on hold and uh, by the time I retired some 16, 20 years later, 
I certainly have very different interests and passions now. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it is a long time, but many people search their whole life looking for something that they're passionate about. And I found that young and early through sport and in particular in cycling. Were you overly talented? Uh, I had talent, yeah. I think it's fair to say I was, I was talented. Um, you know, I'm creative, visual, um, was good at school, cheeky, bit naughty <laughs> sometimes as a young kid. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think sometimes too being the baby of the family, just um, where I fell in that roster, lended to a certain character as I as I grew up. And uh, all of my siblings are coming around for a, a barbecue this weekend and, you know, I'll be on survival mode like you wouldn't believe this weekend, yeah, with all my older siblings turning up, but but I love it and uh, we wouldn't have it any other way. Can I ask you something about racing? How much is speed? How much is tactics? Well, they, they both go hand in hand. It can certainly uh, help to have the speed advantage and uh, sometimes the engine is just too good in some athletes. Uh, but there are times where the engine is just not helped in terms of not knowing what to do with it it's it's also you know in terms of my sport it was all all about having enough knowledge of your opponents to understand their strengths and weaknesses in order to be able to execute certain skills and strategies to give yourself the best chance to either negate their strengths or or take advantage of their weaknesses and it's a it's not an easy environment. It's a one-on-one situation. It's very gladiatorial in that sense. And so if if you can't handle the pressure and the on that of that one-on-one really under the spotlight and highlight, um, then you will crack. And anyone that I raced against that I knew, you know, struggled, I certainly took advantage of that. And I know that in the latter part of my career, other athletes did that to me. Well, you had a particular uh opponent for a number of years didn't you well yes i did my sister carrie and then victoria pendleton um but the longest one i had was actually myself <laughs> and is that and is that really right is it really yourself at the end of the day yeah absolutely yes i was very very harsh very um good at judging very analytical and even today in my retirement my my partner tells me to chill out <laughs> that's, that's the polite way of putting it but <laughs> Yeah, no, I think sometimes it takes a special kind of creature to be successful in the pointy end of, of sport and competition. And it's it's not it's not about being selfish. I think selfish is when you start to hinder someone else and, and make your own success happen. It's, it takes a real dedication that many people just don't have the comprehension of. Was there a particular favourite moment in all the Olympics that you've competed in? Oh, it's really tough. Um, there's lots of great moments that don't even involve sport that are just being in the environment, seeing superstars, uh, meeting royalty. In terms of what I felt at the time of things happening, London was certainly incredible. Athens was just a holy shit moment <laughs> as a young 20-year-old. But carrying the flag was certainly uh, a highlight in Rio at my final games. It was certainly something I will never forget walking into the Maracana Stadium after Australia was announced and just being hit with a wall of noise. And we're really respected as a, as a nation in sport and certainly at the Olympic level as well and, and very much loved across the, the world. So it was a really proud moment to be able to lead a team that I not only had been a part of but had dreamt of and watched um, as a young kid growing up as well. As a captain, can you talk us through what is the role as the captain? My role was to inspire the team (laughs) and uh, I was given three minutes to do that in a speech, which I have no trouble talking, but when you have to kind of condense it to a time frame like that, it it took me weeks to work out what to say and just, I guess, make yourself available, you know, because I went from being the rookie of the team in Athens and no one knowing me to all of a sudden everyone in the team knowing me and we had a large proportion of of members of our team in Rio that were first time members of the Olympic team and so it was really important for me as a leader to to bring myself to their level rather than them putting me above them because we were all members of the same team we were all there representing not just our country but our families and ourselves and our communities and you know unity I think was a really important element for me because 
it always had been in my career. You know, I, I needed to know that my coach and my team were in my corner so that I could go out and compete against the best in the world because if it didn't happen, then it was those people I went, I went back to. How were you surviving financially during all this, during your career? How tough is it? Yeah, it is tough uh, yeah. as an Olympic athlete. Uh, a lot of people think when you win an Olympic gold medal, you're instantly rich. <laughs> Not the case. No. No, I worked uh, two jobs until my second Olympic Games in Beijing. Is that right? um, I was a bank teller uh, by day and um, I did temporary yep. work placements. So I was the relief staffer by the time I moved to Adelaide. So I just got called around to all the different branches um, when someone got called in sick. Um, my training allowed me to be called in two days a week. And then my sister Carrie got me a job in the canteen of the hockey and soccer stadiums in Adelaide, which yep. um, we'd been used to that style of work because our parents had a barbecue chicken shop for seven years to help fund our, our sporting ventures. Right. And so if I worked in the day or trained, then I would go and work in the canteens with Carrie at night to be able to make a bit more money. And if I didn't get shifts, I just I went on mum and dad. <laughs> So, Anna, when you're balancing all that up, can you just talk us through, for those who have never been, at, again, at that level, what time do you get out of bed in the morning to start training and what time do you finish and then do you watch videos of your competitors, et cetera? Can you just give us a bit of a view of the, the so-called training balance versus trying to fund yourself? How hard is it? Yes. I mean, what I did, it's not like the swimmers getting up at ridiculous hours. We needed to uh, train at hours where we were functional. <laughs> So, you know, we would do, in a week, we would do three gym sessions at three hours a piece, four track sessions at four hours a piece. We'd be on the road between 20 and 50K as well um, in between those sessions as well as an ergo session. And then on top of all of that, you throw in all your stretching, your ice baths, your recovery, your massage, your physio, your medical checks. And then on top of all of that, you you add in all of your analysis, your planning, your strategizing, your um, touching base with all the staff to make sure that, your nutrition's on track, your sleep's on track, uh, all those sorts of things. And so you do have to be on top of things. <laughs> but you, for in most athletes in Australia, you have to love what you do because it's you don't do it for financial reward. I was very fortunate that um, I picked up my first sponsor in 2008 and uh, and, and really was able, was, was actually my, my bank, paid me my wage, my yearly wage as a temp so I didn't have to work. My manager uh, was also my first sponsor. She gave me some money so I didn't have to work. <laughs> and um, ultimately I, I was able to earn some, you know, some good money by the end of my career and um, put a deposit down on a house, which I'm very, very proud of. You do hours and hours of training for four years at a time. You can't even add up probably how many hours you put in. <laughs> and yet the event is over in, what, 30, 30 seconds. How does the mind deal with that? Yeah, it's a good question, especially when you consider the athletic runners that, you know, it's over in under 10 seconds. <laughs> There's no greater pressure than having one chance every four years to get it right, which is why preparation is so key. Trust in yourself and your team is so key, but also the enjoyment of the chance to perfect that small notion of time when you get the shot to is is very exciting. The trickier part about it is one chance in four years for the ability to showcase that because it's so rare, it's quite addictive. And I think that's why I ultimately stuck around um, for as long as I did. But I can guarantee you 30 seconds might not sound like much, but it hurts like hell. <laughs> and earlier we talked a little bit about rivalry. In particular, one great rival was Victoria Pendleton. Can you talk us through the apology after the incident in 2006 and that she potentially snubbed you? No, n not a snub because it was it was me in the wrong because I almost caused Victoria Pendleton to crash in a Kieran in 2006 in a semi-final and I, I was disqualified from the race um, as a result of that. So I, I went to her afterwards to offer an apology and try and explain what happened or why I felt it went wrong. But understandably, she was uh, quite upset and chose not to um, listen or, or, or hear me. So that lended obviously to me being quite upset. I'd never offended anyone before. Yeah, right. And I didn't really hear from Vicky personally for the next four years. So I made the assumption she didn't like me. 
and that's kind of where the rivalry started. Um, as it would go on, you know, yep. we, the two of us, would start to rise above a lot of the other competitors and ultimately find ourselves head-to-head quite a bit in our long 10-year career. And by the time we got to London, you had all the elements to make a great concoction of, of a massive rivalry. You know, I never want to be on the start line again against Victoria Pendleton in London. I never want to feel what I felt at that time. But I'm glad that I did because I was one half of a rivalry in women's sprinting that put a spotlight on a sport that never had a spotlight on it before. And I'm really proud of that. So what did you feel at the time then? A lot of pressure, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of nerves, a lot of expectation, a lot of just... I want to know the end result so I don't feel this suspense. <laughs> yeah, it was sometimes it was really hard to breathe, sometimes it was hard to keep my focus, sometimes it was yeah, it was turmoil, internal turmoil. And what did it feel like when you finished? Utter relief. <laughs> huge relief. Yeah, huge huge relief. But you won. I did win. We, you know, the nice thing was out of London, both of us came away with a gold medal. She won the gold in the Kirin and I won the gold in the sprint. Um, I thought it was pretty profound that she held my hand the whole way down the back straight um, after losing her final race in front of a home crowd. And it was a great, I think, show of sportswomanship. And um, yeah, I was very thankful for that. And was that down to some very good tactics between you and your coach and your team? Yeah, no, that was, uh, I'd say, execution-wise for me and tactics and um, planning and strategic uh, preparation by the team, that's for sure. And uh, a a lot of work and a lot of people went into um, making that happen, you know, in a race that can be 10 to 30 seconds long. Yeah. Uh, It it took us four years to work out how we were going to have the best chance to be competitive against the best in the world, which was Victoria Pendleton. Yep. And, um yeah, it, it bore down to analysing a lot of her performances, breaking her down to statistical data, and then taking that data and being able to comprehend the information to myself in that I needed to upskill myself in order to be competitive against what skills, strengths and weaknesses Victoria presented. So it wasn't about Victoria Pendleton, it was about how I could get better to be competitive with the best. And if I was going to win in London and take my silver from Beijing and shift that to gold, I had to overcome the best in the world. And that was her. And so I was thankful for an incredible team that made me look good. (laughs) How come she didn't find out what you're up to? We trialed a strategy a year and a half out from London. Yep. And that was using the track stand um, when I was in front of her to, to force her from the back position, which was her most practiced and most successful into the front. Yep. And we were successful there. And then we chose not to use that strategy or that skill again um, until we met her in the final in London. Oh, she so let her go dormant for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we, we showed plan B, C, D, E, F, you know, in case we couldn't pull off plan A, which we were preparing behind closed doors with um, team um, every day. So, yeah. Terrific effort. It must feel great not only just to win but also that the plan got you there as well. It really is something to plan in such detail and have it happen in that manner. And so when I came off the track, first person I went to was my coach Gary and all I could say to him was thank you. I certainly couldn't do that on my own and I appreciate that I'm an individual athlete and I'm very much seen that way but, um, yeah, it certainly wasn't an individual effort, that's for sure. You had some challenging times during this period as well. You've had personal life and also your coach. Yeah, so that was between London and Rio. Life happens yep. and uh, can throw lots of volatile things your way and it certainly did for me and personally, um, obviously going through a marriage breakdown and divorce and a physical injury which saw the lower few levels of my spine damaged and then my coach Gary West was diagnosed with motor neuron disease and a year after we won the bronze, my final medal, uh, of my Olympic career in Rio, he would lose his battle uh, with motor neurone disease and then throw on top of that a um, transition away from the sporting career. And then uh, there's a lot of um, uh, loss and grief to deal with as a result of that. And, you know, the personal challenges can certainly affect professional performance at the end of the day. And, and again, my team were just so supportive in uh, making sure that I was as stable as possible 
as happy as possible given the circumstances and uh, and supported so that yeah we could we could try and make something of it and uh, at bronze medal at the time you know I was just so thrilled to be able to walk away with something I was so proud and it wasn't until um, I won that medal that it was made clear to me that no Australian athlete from any sport has ever medaled individually at four consecutive games and I was convinced there would be a swimmer in there that had done it, but apparently no one else had. So <laughs> I was pretty proud of that. Were you ready to retire then? Oh, yes. You were? You're done? Yes, well and truly. What happens the day after you retire? I sleep in. I <laughs> ate a lot of junk food and I didn't really move much from my bed. <laughs> had to do the usual media reports and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a crazy feeling. I didn't even warm down after my last race. I didn't have a protein shake, didn't have a massage, didn't pack up my bike. Didn't I just left, went uh, back to the village, had a shower and slept. I was so tired. I was yeah. utterly exhausted and uh, and looking forward to just catching my breath. It had um, been an extremely long campaign and Rio, yeah, the finish line for me couldn't come quick enough in Rio. And how does the athletes adjust to normal life thereafter? Is it tough? Yeah, it's tough, that's for sure. It's, um, I can't speak for anyone else, but my experience was certainly challenging. And in, in, the, uh, in, in the beginning, it was really quite fun. It was amazing to have so much freedom and let go of the structure and routine that I was used to for such a long time and um, um, sleep in to whatever time I wanted to and eat whatever I wanted to and drink whatever I wanted to and travel wherever I wanted to without reporting to drug testing agencies and you know, I could sleep over friends' houses at nighttime. I could go and spend time with my family and friends. I could just do things just cause. And that was really great until that got repetitive. And then I started to miss the routine and the structure and and then started to feel a bit of confusion around, well, if I miss it, did I make the right decision about leaving? Yep. Um, but then it just, you know, takes some time to comprehend what I was feeling processing the loss and grief um, of all those changes, understanding that even though I loved competition, I was done with the training. I didn't miss training. I missed going to training. I missed my teammates. I missed that environment of, you know, like-minded, motivated people. But I, I certainly didn't miss the dedication and exhaustion that came with it. So, yeah, it was really, you know, taking some time to recalibrate what normal was because normal was high-performance elite athlete lifestyle for 22 years. Mm-hmm. And life is very different. So what happens in the sense of where does one's career go then? Now, not everybody walks in your shoes and then has opportunities they may have, but there's also people out there who can take advantage of people like yourself. So how do you make your play after all this? Well, sometimes it's not about the career where the career goes it's, it's what the person wants and what the person needs and um, that was something that I had to navigate was what I felt people expected me to do what I should do what I was good at as opposed to what I wanted to do what would make me happy what would give me energy and um, I found that balance very difficult and very tricky I found taking on new things scary because I thought people expected me to be good or as good as I was in my career with something new um so often I didn't try new things initially until my partner Nick just said forget the whole Anamias thing forget everyone else what what will feed your soul and um the first thing was going back to art school and painting and drawing and finding a love of creativity again and connecting with a very different circle of people and having a different conversation on a regular basis was very enlightening Family was very important to me, but um, obviously at that time it wasn't um, on the cards and so I looked into adoption, which as an Australian and then as a single Australian, non-existent, (laughs) and then I was steered down the foster care path and I um, spent some time becoming a foster carer for emergency cases of children between the age of four and eight. Spent some time making myself available to that in between when I was doing motivational speaking, you know, processing a lot of things about my career, being involved with commentary team for the Tour Down Under and and still being involved with charities, which I found passionate about and supporting my coach, Gary West, up until his passing in August of 2017. And and from there, um, obviously, my partner Nick and I, we had uh, a family of our own. My daughter Evelyn was born last year and we're expecting our second bubby 
uh, later this year and uh, my love of art and creativity has landed me to start a very small but start a small business called AM Pottery and Art. Yep. And that is really what fills my time. I've also taken on a position to be the general manager or one of the general managers under Chef Demission Petria Thomas for the Commonwealth Games Association of Australia in Birmingham next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking forward to doing some commentary on the team for the Tokyo Games as well. So there's lots of opportunities and things that are interesting, but um, I try to keep it as balanced between what I consider as work and and what I consider as something that feeds my soul these days. How's business then? You're uh, you're conquering that? It's amazing how much support is out there. uh, I made my daughter a sensory board. And um, I just put it together with some paint and some bits and bobs I got from the local hardware store and then decided I'd share that on my social pages for my art and pottery business. And uh, a whole lot of mums got in touch wanting a few of those. So I I have actually made quite a few um, toddler sensory boards, which has been quite fun. Um, I'm loving the pottery side of things, even though I'm a beginner and um, made a few sales in the painting sector as well. So um, it's going on, going along just at a nice pace to start with. <laughs> and you've also put pen to paper? Yeah, I um, collaborated with Rhys Humphrey, who was the head of uh, sport at the Advertiser in Adelaide and obviously a well-respected sports journalist and a good friend of mine um, in order to put together a book called Now. Sometimes the end of the race is just the beginning and I wanted to be able to offer something that really kind of bore out of the lessons I was able to gain from the motivational speaking that I had done since I retired and and I knew that there was a lot that I had to process once I had left the sport and I just needed a little bit of time and space to be able to get my head around that to articulate it to people to understand or at least find a way that they could take those experiences and apply them for whatever challenges they were facing in their own life. So this book is not your typical sports autobiography book. It doesn't start from where I was born and go through how I grew up and all the different competitions. It fills the gaps in between big competitions that many people weren't tuned into. It really humanises, I think, my career and my experiences and my challenges. And a lot of people think it's all about the, the competition, but for me, it was what happened when all the the bells and whistles of the green and gold stopped, and uh, that was probably where some of my biggest challenges started. And um, thanks to my connections and friend in Steve War, he put me in touch with Jeff Armstrong at StokehillPress.com, who was prepared to publish the book. And uh, all the feedback has been extremely positive. What would you say to the athletes now, giving them advice and preparation for Tokyo? This is going to be an unusual time, isn't it? I don't know that anyone can offer them advice because no one's experienced this before. Athletes are a real-life version of reality TV. We witness them putting everything on the line, winning and losing. We see their pain and anguish when they are defeated. We see their joy and elation when they succeed. And, you know, the Olympics will be in some ways sad this year because it's not going to be run in the same manner of which the world is accustomed to seeing it. Obviously, the Olympics are about bringing people together, which is certainly something that COVID doesn't allow us to do. So, um, But the simple fact that they're persevering, they're still striving for their goals and they're trying to make headway in a world that is so chaotic and stressful and uh, uncertain I think is really aspirational and inspirational for a lot of us um, to watch and I hope that that's respected in particular for people who who aren't really interested in the sporting arena you know people involved in sport I think have an appreciation for it but I I hope that people outside of it can have an appreciation for the dedication and commitment and hard work that's gone into it. I tried to find a way to to correlate so people could understand the challenge of delaying the Olympics for 12 months to an athlete. And in some ways it would be like you've spent four years studying for a degree and you're about to get your graduation papers and then something happens and you don't get them. You're going to have to stay committed and study and pay for that study for another 12 months in the hope that you can get it in the next year so you still have to stay competitive you still have to keep your grades up all that sort of thing you can imagine the distress the confusion the frustration of the people involved 
And uh, I think the younger athletes will benefit from the delay. I think the older athletes may struggle. <laughs> I certainly know had this have happened in London, I would have been able to continue. But had this have happened in Rio, you wouldn't have got an extra 12 months out of me. Is that right? Yeah, it's a very challenging time. And I just wish them all the best. When you walk into these corporate events and give these motivation speeches, what do you actually talk about? Well, you'd have to come to one. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's the topics that seem to be repeating for me, which I've learned that sport is an amazing vehicle to teach or at least share experience in, and it, it crosses every profession that I've come across. You know, dealing with change, dealing with adversity, resilience, what is resilience? How do you stay motivated? How does an individual function within a team? How do you keep your mindset open to the big picture but focus on the small pieces to make it happen? There are so many parallels that correlate between sport and professional business or even just life in general. I have so many parents come up to me afterwards and say, I wish my daughter was here to hear that. I wish my son was here to hear that. And I have done a lot of um, school talks as well for that reason. But um, I don't pretend to know the profession that I'm speaking to. I just share mine and my experience in a way that I think people can take something away from it. And um, and that gives me great joy. You get many uh, unusual questions thrown at you? The most unusual one was, and it stands out because it was never been asked it ever before nor since, was someone asked me for my parents' barbecue chicken stuffing recipe <laughs> from when we had the chook shop. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, of, of that one-hour presentation, you want the chicken stuffing recipe. And, but they did. So that's cool. <laughs> Why do you think sport is so important to the Australian culture and the DNA? I think we, right from the get-go, are fighters and battlers and I think we see ourselves in our sportsmen and women on the field. I think that we invest our emotion into those people for their representation of us and I think our history of sport and competition is so interwoven into our fabric and our culture that it's become a part of our identity. It's become a part of our character. It uh, sets the benchmark for the spirit of our country that people expect. And I think because of all of those elements, we're very much loved on an international level, which is why I think we are held in such high esteem as sportsmen and women and and regarded as role models, Um, which is why as sportsmen and women, it's really important to, you, you just can't pick and choose what you like and dislike about the position. You know, you have to take everything that comes with it and being a role model is one of them. Can you think back when you had that speech that night or that day, that three-minute speech, and you said you had to aspire the best of the best? What words do you use to inspire the best of the best? (laughs) Well, my first words were to the Olympic team with the Governor-General and the Chef de Mission, Kitty Chiller, and Channel 7 and 400-plus of Australia's best athletes. My first words were simply, oh, shit, I've lost my speech. (laughs) And uh, that certainly broke the ice, I can guarantee you of that. Um, I didn't write it. Normally I'm a written girl and I had to use the sponsored phone of the team and it's not my usual piece of technology and and I hope, I'm pretty sure many people will relate to a new piece of, of technology and then touching a screen and then something goes one way and something goes another and you just don't know how to get it back and uh, that's what happened to me as I walked onto the stage to present my three-minute speech. It took me a little bit to get it back and I was just about to call my teammate Jacob Schmidt to come up and help me, but I nutted it out. And I think it set a nice tone, to be honest, because um, sometimes you just don't have to be so formal. must have felt terrific giving that that inspiration to all those those youngsters coming through that front door. It didn't feel terrific delivering it, but it felt terrific to see the response. Even my own teammates came up to me and said, where did that come from? <laughs> but, you know, other athletes that I respect and admire immensely, like Sam Stozer, you know, just came up to me afterwards to to tell me how inspirational it was and what she got out of it. And it was nice to be able to hit a chord uh, with, with people who are the most motivated and driven that I've come across. When you are a captain and you make, you've done the speeches you say, but you're, you're putting yourself available, 
for these top athletes. Do they come and talk to you during during the course of the Olympic Games? Do they actually get your counsel? Yes, some do. Some don't. Obviously, some are a bit standoffish and unsure whether they can approach, but most of them, you know, I, I think felt fairly comfortable. And once I think once people get to know me, you know, they're they're pretty chilled. But up until that point, like anything, you meet someone new that you've kind of looked up to or seen on TV. Like I even I remember I ran into our local news presenter. I'm like, oh hello. And then I realized, oh, that they had no idea who I was. So um it's important for athletes or anyone to really rely on the team and the people around them that they're familiar with. But sometimes it's nice to hit relatable accord with someone else from a different perspective. And if you were to look back at that uh, young 11-year-old starting out on her cycling career, what advice would you give her now? Nothing. I've, I've been down this road a lot with my my psych and um, the hardest part that I've found in my career of late is being able to acknowledge my own contribution to my success. And it wasn't until she asked me to trip back to visit my 11-year-old self in my head and just think what she must think looking at me with all the things that I have done and achieved. And she simply asked me, you know, what would you say to that 11-year-old girl? And and all I could say in my head and in my heart was, was thank you because she was about to go through everything that I had been through to become the person that I am today. And I'm grateful for that little girl. And it's been a real privilege to have this conversation with you today. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to No Limitations. 